From Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Do you get out of a car or do you get down from a car? Well, if you're in most places of the English-speaking world, you probably get out of a car. But if you are an increasing number of people in and around Miami, Florida, once you arrive at your destination, you get down from a car. That particular way of describing a very common action comes from the Spanish phrase bajar del carro. The verb bajar means to get down. So yo bajo del carro and tu bajas del carro and ella baja del carro. I get down from the car, you get down from the car, she gets down from the car. The intended meaning is the same thing as what many folks say when they describe getting out of a car, but the literal translation is get down. And that is the translation and structure that has been retained by many people and even adopted by many others in parts of Florida that have been influenced by the large number of Spanish speakers and bilingual speakers who live in that area. And this isn't just a few borrowed words and translated phrases. The linguist Philip Carter has argued that it is, in fact, part of a new English dialect. Carter is a sociolinguist and scholar of language and culture in U.S. Latino communities at Florida International University, where his work includes the relationship between social formations and linguistic variation, Spanish language change in the United States, maintenance and shift of Spanish in the United States, and the new dialect formation. And that latter subject is the topic about which he has written in a recent article in the journal English Worldwide. Philip Carter, welcome. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Philip, one of the things that many people either forget or conveniently don't remember or maybe have never been taught is that Spanish predates English in what is now the United States. So before we can get into a discussion about how Spanish influences English, probably the first thing to say is that these two languages have been influencing each other in this part of the world for like 400 years, right? I'm so happy that you started with that question. Normally, that's something we get to at the end of the interview when I say, oh, by the way, could we please recollect? And then we go and we look at the place names of the states. And so let's just do that from the start. Let's look at the name Florida, Florida. Let's look at the name Colorado, Colorado. Let's look at the name Montana, Montana. Let's look at the name uh, Arizona, Ayazona. The presence of the Spanish language is literally embedded in the names of our states, precisely because the language was here at the time that those states were founded. And Spanish speakers, obviously, were in uh, those places at the time that those states were founded. Um, in certain cases, there are uh, Spanish-speaking communities that trace their histories uh, to colonial times and before. There's continuous, continuously speaking Spanish since colonial times, especially in uh, New Mexico. Um, but it's also useful to remember that the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which was 1848, ceded 55% of Mexican territory to the United States, and that was Texas all the way up. You and other scholars have recognized quite a few unique Spanish dialects within the United States. Um, there are, of course, lots of different English dialectic variations, and 
And we should say here, we're not just talking about accents and pronunciations. These are like meaningfully different vocabularies and phraseologies. And a lot of these are really quite old with origins that, as we've just been discussing, predate this country. But the dialect that you and others have identified in Miami is relatively new by comparison, correct? Yeah, and that's such a great way to ask the question because sometimes people heard me say, "What do you mean new? We've been hearing that we've been hearing people say this for decades." And right. yeah, I mean, that, yeah, right. Like de- decades, it, it just is a matter of uh, perspective on whether or not something is new or old. But when I say new, and I think when you know the the thrust of your question when you when you put it that way is that we're not talking about something that's been around for hundreds of years, but maybe tens of years. And where is it taking shape from? We trace this to, in in large part, to Cuban immigration since the 1950s, yeah? Yeah, that's exactly right. So prior to the end of the Cuban Revolution in 1959, there were maybe five or 6,000 Cuban nationals living in South Florida, say Miami-Dade and Broward County. And the revolution ends, and then immediately... Uh, it, Immigration from Cuba starts to uh, transform the socio-demographic and linguistic landscape of South Florida. And it took about 30 years or so for South Florida to be Cubanized and about 50 years or so for it to become uh, pan-Hispanicized or Latinized. And what I mean by that is after Cubans came and set Miami up as a place in which it was okay to be bilingual or speak Spanish. And there's very particular reasons why that came to pass in the 1960s and 70s. Then it meant that when the Nicaraguan Civil War took place in the 1980s, the elites naturally came here rather than going to, say, Los Angeles or to Houston or something like that. They came to Miami. And then in the 1990s with the... Civil War type situation in parts of Colombia, those political elites came here uh, in their wake and so forth and so on. And then the Venezuelans and then Argentines. And so it was, you know, the whole kind of history hangs on the contingencies and the outcomes of the Cuban Revolution. And so this isn't just Cuban inflected English, although it does hinge on that outcome, as you say. This is Nicaraguan inflected English and uh, Puerto Rican inflected English. And and this this pan-Latino influence is seen and felt in, in this emerging dialect, yeah? The study that we published in the journal that you mentioned at the outset of the show, English Worldwide, focused just on Cubans and Cuban Americans, the, 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 the lexical issue, the, the, the thing related to calcs. But in a prior study where we looked at the vowel system of uh, Miami English, we looked at Colombians, Nicaraguans, Venezuelans, and Cubans, and we found um, similar patterns across those groups in the ways that uh, Spanish influenced in subtle ways the pronunciation of the English vowel system amongst Miami-born Latinxes. Um, but we don't have the data to say that uh, that other groups are using these calcs, but impressionistically, most likely they are. You mentioned this idea of calcs. These are loan translations. Um, can, can you give me an example, maybe some of your favorite examples from this emerging dialect of that we're talking about? Sure. Um, you mentioned the one that um, is, is kind of 
circulating in the media from the study get down from the car bajar del carro that's called a literal lexical calc that it's just a, a literal translation and a calc is different from a borrowing in that rather than taking the word and its phonetic structure and adapting the phonetics into the the the, the language in which the word is being borrowed you simply translate and we find both of those um, types of calcs in miami english get down from the car um Things like put the light for poner la luz, ponme la luz, put me the light, um, put the light, um, throw a photo from tirar una foto. Um, there's various ways to say take a picture in Spanish, but one that's sort of colloquial in Caribbean Spanish is, is to throw a photo. Um, one that I love, and it, I, I love it because it's so kind of beneath the level of awareness for most folks, is the semantic range of... Uh, beef and meat. Ah, uh, carne. Carne, exactly. Um, in Spanish, carne can refer to, is can be a hypernym, like the cat, the, the name for the entire category, meat, under which you have, you know, poultry and seafood and other type of beef. Or it can refer specifically to beef. And so you find that type of um, semantic shift taking place in English in South Florida, where people uh, might order, say, uh, two uh, chicken empanadas, two cheese empanadas, and two meat empanadas. And here everyone knows that meat means beef. And these aren't just like curious translations of second language learners, right? It's not just people who spoke Spanish and have, you know, worked to understand English, but are understanding it through the framework of their first language. You've written that a lot of second generation speakers and onward adopt them as well. And that's really how we become not just, you know, uh, Spanish inflected English, but a dialect, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. So there is, you know, learner English and learner English is a really valuable part of the linguistic scene of South Florida, precisely because 65% of Miami-Dade County is foreign born. And of course, these are related phenomena because people, uh, where do the calcs come from? From learners. But then they get passed down into the speech of children and grandchildren. Um, and that doesn't happen in every situation of language contact. So for example, if a family moves from Saigon to Kansas and the parents likewise you know, loan translate from Vietnamese into English, the kids are not going to end up having those those translations as a part of their speech because we learn our dialect patterns from our adolescent peer group, not directly from our parents. So it really does require a population ecology in which the uh, non-English language or the minority or immigrant language or however you want to refer to it is larger in size than the English monolingual group, which is precisely what happened in Miami. You came from Los Angeles, which also has a lot of Spanish-inflected English. You know, the Chicano movement uh, integrated a lot of sort of overlapping, especially English and Spanish communication. Yes, that is very true, and it is a a wonderful exercise in history, culture, linguistics, and I will add the word politics to compare the language contact situation taking place between Spanish and English in Miami to the language contact situation taking place between Spanish and English in Los Angeles. The situations, it is right to point out that there are 
uh, large numbers of Spanish speakers. By the way, way more Spanish speakers by the number in LA County than there are in Miami. The proportions are different though, and that matters. Um, but also the positioning of the people, that matters. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, where do they fall in the socioeconomic hierarchy? Where do they do, are they in a position in which um, they are hired as teachers in schools? Um, you know, th those types of questions related to power and class also play a role in not only the linguistic development, but also sort of the um, visibility of the language. Um, here I'm referring to Spanish and the acceptability of the language. There are a lot of both first and second generation Cubans from Miami uh, who are very well known now around the rest of the country and even the world. Um, the rapper Pitbull comes to mind. Are, are any of the words and phrases you've studied and learned about as you've studied this dialect, this Miami English dialect, are they starting to pop up outside of Miami as well? Yeah, that's a great question. And I'll tell you that I'm hearing from folk all over the country from Latinx majority settings who say, you know, we say get down from the car. In New Mexico, in Texas, in LA County, in Northern California, and the Mexico-US border, for sure. I mean, these types of expressions are there. It's not that it's just that something new is happening in South Florida, but it's something new and old at the same time. It's new here, but it's old elsewhere. And not everybody else had the opportunity to have their home language variety um, brought to light in the media or validated or legitimated. And so I think that's why I think that's why people are so interested in this topic right now. And all of this is interesting, but it's not just interesting to note. Like the ways in which languages change and are accepted over time, this all plays a really big role in framing power and belonging. And I want to point out here, you've written that in Ukraine, the question as to whether Ukrainian is a separate language or a dialect of Russian is really part and parcel to the way people think about the historical connection and I guess disconnecting points in the relationship between people and culture and governments in those parts of the world that is playing out right now in this really horrific war. Yeah, it's it's the language and the language's structures, but it's also the discourses about the language. Who who controls the discourse about what language is or should be? And if but the the case of Ukraine and Russia, I'm so happy that you added that into the conversation because it's the perfect exemplar. Vladimir Putin would love for the world to believe that Ukrainian is a dialect of Russian because then that would look like Ukraine naturally is a part of the Russian state. But it's such a perverse reversal of the actual history of the Eastern Slavs, namely that the Belarusians, Russians, and Ukrainians came from, guess what, Kievian Rus, <laughs> which is the epicenter of, of Eastern Slavic, that's the Eastern Slavic homeland. And they fanned out and went... Uh, north north into present-day Belarus, northeast into Russia and founded Muscovy, and east into Ukraine. So, it, I mean, that narrative is just patently false. Um, but it, it, controlling the discourse about the language um, is a way to, to intervene on the power of the, of the speakers. There's a lot of fear or 
maybe some would argue, fear-mongering about the use of Spanish in the United States. Uh, You've pointed out that even as Latino immigration continues, there's this long-term pattern of language adoption across three generations that has been retained. Can you talk about that? Sure. That's what linguists call a th- the three-generation pattern of language shift, where a situation of bilingualism shifts to a situation of monolingualism, usually by or during the third generation. And all you have to do is match up the uh, historical patterns of immigration and find out if the the language other than English, the LOT or the immigrant language, is still being spoken past three generations. And everywhere you go, all over the country, the answer is no, except in the case of Spanish in a few isolated situations. So the hysteria has nothing to do with the actual um, uh, longevity of languages other than English. It has to do with politics. If we were concerned about um, preserving languages that are under threat, we would say, wow, we really need to protect languages other than English in the United States, because those are the ones that will be lost and will be lost with great expense to the speakers, to the communities. And I, and yes, I will add to the economies in situations like Miami, where, um, you know, the, uh, the economy, especially in certain sectors, really is dependent on the presence of Spanish. There's been a lot of recent reporting here in Utah, which is named for the Ute tribe, that uh, Ute children, teenagers, are uh, being failed pretty horrifically by the mainstream school systems. But um, at one school that teaches both in English and the Ute native language, the kids are comparatively thriving. There's such benefit to having access, not just to different languages and different people who speak those languages, but subtly different ways of thinking about things too. Yes. And we see it over and over and over again. Um, The success of Cherokee language nests in Western North Carolina and Cherokee medium schools uh, by dual language immersion schools um, in Spanish and English, uh, uh, Mandarin language schools. I mean, it just goes on and on. And we see that there is educational benefit, there is psychological benefit to the children. And those two things, of course, go hand in hand. I mean, do the, how do the children feel? Um, what kind of connection and cohesion do they have in their family unit? Is being able to go to school and learn content in their parents' language as opposed to going to school and feeling that type of dissonance that comes when you're, you receive and, and internalize the message that there's something wrong with your home language. That really affects kids, not only you know in terms of how they identify and the identities that they construct for themselves as they move through school, but in terms of their performance at the school. So on the one hand, this three-generation rule um, should assuage concerns about, you know, English being replaced, but also it it should maybe like create some concerns on our part that we are allowing communities to lose out on one of the things that is really rich about this country of immigrants. 
Yeah, exactly. People's languages. And in, in, in a country where the, our linguistic diversity is, is something that you might think that Americans would really, really, really uh, cherish, given our investments in freedom and per- civil liberties and personal liberties. And I can't think of anything more um, personal than the language that you choose to speak. I mean, access to your mother tongue, access to your parents' language, the language of your home, your grandparents. It's almost like this, you know, my family gave it up so your family should too, as opposed to my family gave it up and boy, I wish we hadn't. Yeah, I hear those anecdotes all the time, or rather I read them often in comments on articles. Oh, you should never read the comments. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. (laughs) That's a bad habit that I'm working to give up. But but, but you do learn about the, you do learn about the, about the, the mindsets that exist in, around these topics. And I do hear that my, my great grandfather came from Italy and, you know, he learned English and it, and I, okay. But what would the situation have been had he not been coerced into giving up Italian or had the opportunity been available for him to speak both? And by the way, when he, when we point out that great, great granddad learned English, uh, he did not learn it overnight either. So I mean, I wish that we had the occasion to think about these, about linguistic history and linguistic diversity as it pertains to national identity in, in, in deeper conversations and in more sophisticated ways. So turning back to Miami English, what we have, instead of one language taking over another, when you hear this, this Spanish-infused Miami dialect, I wonder if what you perceive and appreciate is that this is by contrast a more healthy way for languages and the people who speak them to interact and to change together. Do you know what fascinates me, Matthew, is as a linguist, but also as a person, is that we are getting to see the history of human language be inflected in real time right before our very eyes. And what I mean by that is every language, every dialect, and indeed every word has a history. And that history is a human history that includes people moving around the world, sometimes isolating, using their um, evolutionary inheritance for human language, using their evolutionary inheritance and cognitive principles to move between multiple languages, to juggle multiple languages at once. We have the evolutionary ability to do that. That all of that is being brought to bear in a situation that we get to look at right now in South Florida. There's an interesting language ideology where people are cool with going from Chaucer to Shakespeare to modern English. You know, and we even set it up like that. Like, you know, right. if you're an English major. That's how we teach it. Yeah, you teach it like old English, middle English, modern English, and people love that. But how do you think we got from Chaucer to Shakespeare to modern English? Through language variation, through the process of people varying language and and dialects rising and falling. That's how it happens. And why would we believe that that process would stop in the present, having led us from the fifth century to the present? It's just going to stop. Well, and and thank God it hasn't, because it feels like it would be exhausting to try to speak Shakespearean English all the time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Good point. And I guess I guess in summary of that point, our languages 
you know, we, we've had human language for long enough in our history that we think of them as existing as such, that we've named them, you can study them, we have literary canons in them, we have, you know, our news media in them, they're, now they're embedded in our national identities and our personal identities. But really, language simply follows and is catching up to always the conditions of humans as they do their business, namely moving around the world, coming into contact with one another, sometimes isolating for long periods of time, sometimes dominating other people or being, or being subjugated by other people um, in those types of unfortunate situations. And that's how language, that's how language changes. That's how we got to the linguistic map that we got in the first place. So I, I guess it's just useful to remember that our, <laughs> our little lifespans as important as they are, and as, as much as they matter to us as we embody them, um, are but just a blip on the ever-changing uh, tapestry of human language as it continues to unfold and evolve now for some 175,000, 200,000 years. It's not going to stop. That's Philip Carter. He is a sociolinguist at Florida International University, and his report on a recent study about Spanish-influenced lexical phenomena in emerging Miami English was recently published in the journal English Worldwide. Philip, thank you, and uh, dale. <laughs> My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio, and if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us on UPR every Thursday morning at 10.30 and on KCPW at 10 on Thursday and noon on Sunday. If you miss us, then you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Claire Scott. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas. <laughs>